0: This morning, we're continuing the spring series on the Book of Ephesians. Last week, Tim was here and doing something else, Tim Tinsley. So we're picking back up Ephesians this morning. Uh, we're in chapter three verses one through six, and you've got it there on your handout in the middle of the table. Um, you may also find it helpful to have your scriptures open, look at other passages. I know this isn't a worship service. It's not a formal liturgical setting, but let's this morning stand. As we read God's word together, Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 6. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promised in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for waking us and drawing us here this morning for the friendships uh, established and growing that you are working into our lives uh, and the encouragement that is. We pray now that as we meditate on your word that you would speak to us, that you would draw forth truths and promises from this passage that that would connect in meaningful ways with our lives this morning. Give us wisdom for that, and may your spirit be at work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you probably noticed that the title of the lesson this morning is The Mystery of Christ. The Mystery of Christ. Uh, that's not a very creative title. It comes straight out of verse 4 but it is a very unique title because it's the only place in the Bible where this phrase, the mystery of Christ, is used. So what is the mystery of Christ? Well, Paul likes this word mystery. He uses it seven times in Ephesians, so seven times in six chapters. Three of those times are here in these six verses. And when he used the word mystery, he's not referring to, to something that's unknown or unknowable. That's typically how we think of the word mystery. Something unknown or unknowable can't be found out, can't be discovered. When Paul's using the word mystery, he's talking about something that's ordinarily not known or has not been known, something secret that's now been revealed to him as an apostle by the Holy Spirit. He spells that out in verse three. And the mystery that Paul is describing, the mystery of Christ, has been made known to him because God has revealed it to him. And now he's passing it on to the Ephesians and passing it on to us. And the mystery is this. Through Jesus Christ, entrance into the kingdom of God is no longer exclusive. Through Jesus Christ, entrance into the kingdom of God, salvation, life in the kingdom, Through Jesus Christ, entrance into the kingdom is no longer exclusive. Do you know what I mean by exclusive? I mean something that you cannot ordinarily access on your own. Not just something unique, not just something interesting, not just something expensive, but something that you have to be an insider to take advantage of. According to Merriam Webster, something exclusive is something that by definition, shuts others out. It's something that you have to be brought into by another. Last week, Tim Tinsley was here and was talking about going to Peru on mission trips with high school students when he was here as a pastor. I was one of those high school students that went to Peru with Tim, uh, three times uh, went to Peru to work at this orphanage in the jungle. And one of those times, I don't remember which one it was exactly, but one of those times We were traveling back to Dallas after 10 days, 12 days of um, not very good food and lots of really hard manual labor and sleeping on a hard floor like this with a sleeping bag, um, not having had a real shower in 10 or 12 days. And we were flying back through Lima, back to Dallas, and we had a... Uh, We had to stay in the airport overnight. We had an early morning 4 a.m. flight. You know, those are the cheapest, right? Um, So we had this early morning flight. We are exhausted, you know, 12 or 15 high school students, a couple adults. And Doug Horn, some of you may remember Doug Horn, elder here at PCPC. Doug Horn did the most godly thing that night. He appealed at the American Airlines Admirals Club to let these 15 high school students in, to have free Cokes and trail mix and a hot shower, which we had not had in almost two weeks. It was amazing. It was mind-blowing. I don't know if he sweet-talked the lady at the desk or paid for us somehow, but we got in. We got in. So that's one example of something exclusive, but it's not a perfect example because you can earn that. You can become a member of the Admirals Club by experience, by flying a lot, by paying for it. Something more exclusive is something like going to the Masters. Some of you may have been to the Masters. Now, technically, uh, in the the sporting world, the Masters is like the hardest ticket to get. informally, you can buy them uh, from third-party resellers. But formally, traditionally, there's only two ways to get tickets to the Masters. Number one, you have to be a a series badge holder, is what they call it. You have to be a patron uh, in perpetuity. And originally, you could only become a patron between the years 1972 and 1978, and then they closed enrollment. And they opened it back up briefly in 2001, but... You typically have to be a patron holding a badge to the tournament year after year after year for life. And when you die, you can pass it to your spouse, but then it's done. You can't pass it on to another generation. Um, now you can also, they started a few years ago, you can enter a lottery and sign up to to win tickets, win the right to buy tickets, basically. Um, well, about eight years ago, a friend of mine was given eight, Patron badges for life. The chairman of the tournament gave him eight patron badges, series badges, for life. Two for him, two for his son, two for his daughter, and two to give to a friend. How did he get them? What motivated the chairman of Augusta National to give him eight badges? Invaluable, priceless. Well, he owned a strategic piece of real estate. He owned literally, the the, the club was expanding across the street, building a parking lot, and he literally owned the last house in the former subdivision that was being developed into the parking lot. He was the holdout. He was that guy for about a year and a half who owned a house smack in the middle of a field that had become a parking lot. You can read about it, June 2010, issue of Golf Digest. There's a little piece on it. And so eventually, he kept negotiating with the club for the sale of his house. His friends thought he was going to end up at the bottom of the Savannah River um, because of pushing these guys so hard. But eventually, he negotiated in the sale of his house to the club for not only a good purchase price, but for eight series badges. And so, in 2014, he gave me one, and I got to go. This is just not for life. This is just for that tournament. 2014, got to go to the tournament uh, for a weekend, all of Saturday and most of Sunday. Got to go, and as a golf fan, not not a very good golfer, but as a golf fan, going, getting in to Augusta, making it through security, and making it in, and turning the corner and seeing just perfect. Green grass and beautiful flowers on a warm spring afternoon is just amazing. It's breathtaking. Um, I was in awe. I've made it in. Now, all right, we've taken a pretty significant detour away from Ephesus <clears throat> to Lima and Augusta, which are not bad places, but it's all for good reason. Remember, Paul's purpose. In this passage, is to pass on to us the mystery of Christ. To pass on the mystery of Christ. That through Jesus Christ, our entrance into the kingdom of God is no longer exclusive. In other words, entrance to the kingdom is available to anyone and everyone who would believe in Jesus Christ. And so, my primary goal this morning is to help us appreciate that fact, because I think sometimes, most times, we take it for granted. We take it for granted that we who have trusted in Jesus Christ have received entrance to the kingdom, have received salvation, have received something so incredibly rare and exclusive. And so to do this, I want to just focus on the three titles that are given to us at the very end of our passage in verse six, three titles that are given to, to God's people, to the church. He calls us as Gentiles, as believers in Jesus Christ. He he calls us by three names. He says, this mystery is that Gentiles are, and here are the three, fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So heirs, members, partakers. Those three things all illustrating the beauty the amazing privilege of being a part of the kingdom. Think of about heirs. He calls us heirs, fellow heirs. Now, Paul uses the language of inheritance throughout the book of Ephesians. If you read chapter 1, verses 11 through 18, you'll see him start talking about salvation as an inheritance. So already in the book, he's established this framework for thinking about Uh, our life in Christ as something received, as the family of God, received as an inheritance, and that we, having received this inheritance, are heirs of the kingdom, heirs of salvation. So that language is shot through the book. Now, for a period of time in redemptive history, this inheritance, this inheritance of salvation, this, this being an heir was the exclusive privilege of one family the Jews, the children of Abraham. It was the exclusive privilege of that one family. Now, yes, we read the Old Testament, you read a book like Ruth, and there are occasional instances of Gentiles being brought into the kingdom, being made a part of that family, but in becoming a part of that family, they had to adopt all of the family ways. They had to essentially become worshiping, law-abiding Jews in every sense, that that was a consequence and a requirement of entering the kingdom. They had to be in that family and be like that family. Now, salvation is no longer the exclusive privilege of the Jews. Salvation is open to any and all who would believe in Jesus Christ. To be a Gentile in the kingdom of God is no longer an occasional exception. It is the rule. God has opened wide the boundaries of his kingdom without distinction now between Jew and Gentile. Think of, flip back just one page to chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. You hear Paul reference this distinction between Jew and Gentile. In verses 12 and 13, he says, that we have obtained this inheritance predestined according to the promise of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Paul is speaking of himself, we as a Jew, and then you also, you Ephesians, as Gentiles. He's honoring this distinction and saying, in Christ, this inheritance is now shared. It's now shared. And it's in here in chapter 3 where Paul gets very specific and very passionate about this truth and reveals in detail the contours of this incredible mystery. Now, in a very real sense, salvation and life in the kingdom of God is still exclusive It's just not exclusive by the same terms. Salvation is still exclusive. You have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved. He is the way and the truth and the life, and there is no salvation apart from him. He is, what does he call himself? He calls himself the door. cannot be more plain and more obvious. He is the way into the kingdom. But all of the additional requirements, all of the additional moral and cultural and religious requirements have been fulfilled in him and therefore have been removed. And the kingdom is open to any and all who would believe. God's people, the Jews in the Old Testament, God's people broke the covenant. They earned exile for themselves, and only Jesus kept the covenant. Only he is the way into the kingdom of God. As one author puts it, he alone is the rightful heir. He alone is the rightful heir, for he alone is without covenant-breaking sin. Those who are united to Christ are heirs in him of all the promises of God. And so if you are attached to Jesus Christ by faith, you then are an heir. You're part of the family of God, the kingdom of God, because he has given you access. So what qualifies someone to become an heir is not their background, not their personal identity, it's Jesus alone. Romans 10, 12, and 13. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches, think of inheritance, bestowing riches on all who call on him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So heirs, a beautiful, beautiful picture of our salvation. In Jesus Christ, we have been made heirs. We've also been made members. We're going to move a little more quickly through these last two. Paul calls us members of the same body in verse 6. Members of the same body. If we are all heirs, all who have trusted in Jesus Christ are heirs, have entered the family. Uh, That term heirs signifies that the, the exclusions have been removed and that coming to faith in Jesus Christ brings you into the kingdom, into the family of God. This next phrase, members of the body, is emphasizing not our access to the kingdom, but it's emphasizing our equality in the kingdom our equality within the church. There is no more distinction, no more division between believers. There's no distinction. We are wired, hardwired, to compare ourselves to others. And we do this in the church just as much as kids do it socially in middle school. We are constantly comparing ourselves to one another and figuring out who is similar, who is different, who is better, who is not as good. We are hardwired to make distinctions between ourselves. We are hardwired for spiritual pride, spiritual pride, finding yourself, viewing yourself to be better than someone else for spiritual reasons, for religious reasons, for reasons of your own Christian morality, or theological understanding, or leadership in the church, or whatever it may be. We're hardwired for it in our souls. And it's a work of the Holy Spirit to convince us of this, that as heirs, as co-heirs, through Jesus Christ, that we are now members of the same body and that we are equal members. None more significant than another, none better than another, none more deserving than another. And it's a work of the Holy Spirit to convince us that we are one and that we are equal. Last May, my sister adopted a four-year-old little girl from Ethiopia. My sister and her husband and three kids, they added a fourth child. This little girl, her name is Getia. She goes by Tia. She's four. My sister and her husband are very white. They live in a very white suburb of Chattanooga, Tennessee, Lookout Mountain. So when they go to the grocery store, when they go to church, and it's my sister and her three white kids and her very black Ethiopian daughter. They maybe get some furrowed eyebrows. What's going on there? That's that's curious. That's interesting. But Tia's last name is the same last name as those other three children. Legally, and in their hearts as a family, she has equal status. Her last name is Wyckoff, just as the other three children's last name is. What is our name as believers? Paul says it in the first verse of this book, Ephesians 1.1. What does he call us? Saints, right? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus. That's an honorific title for us who are dead in our sins and trespasses to be called saints. And within being called saints, there are no saints more saintly than another because we are all made saints in the same way. Not by ourselves, not by our own effort, not by our own strength, only made saints by Jesus not in ourselves. And so our formal name of saints fights against this informal, natural tendency of creating classes and distinctions and divisions even within the church. Our churches and our relationships within the church are so often distinguished by economic class and by ethnic heritage By personality type, and even by the types of sins that we struggle with. We group ourselves. Sociology 101. We're constantly grouping ourselves. And I'd like to think that 99% of it is unintentional, and only a little bit of it is deliberate. But sometimes I'm not sure. And really, it doesn't matter whether it's unintentional. deliberate. It's wrong. It's wrong. We in the kingdom are called to pursue the fulfillment of what Paul is saying here, that we are members of the same body and equally members of the same body. Think of the significance that Jesus places on the church loving one another as a witness to the world. So, don't even think about yourself for a minute. Don't think about whether you feel included in what you're doing to make others feel included and equal and cared for. Think about unbelieving friends and family members. Think about coworkers. Think about the world watching our church. Jesus says that the world will know us. How? By our love for one another. And so a great author, Ed Clowney, says this about the witness of Christian equality and unity and mutual care and love. He says, Christian witness that is limited to private religious experience cannot challenge secularism. Christians in community must again show the world, not merely family values, but the bond of love of Christ. He says, only as the church binds together those whom selfishness and hate have cut apart, Will its message be heard and its ministry of hope to the friendless be received? Those are strong and beautiful words. Our world is watching. We are experiencing. And we need to embrace this call, this picture that Paul gives us of being heirs and equal members of the same body. And lastly, he says that we are we're heirs, we are members of the same body, and we are partakers of the promise. In Christ Jesus through the gospel. What's the promise? Notice he doesn't say promises. It's not plural. It's singular. It says we're heirs of the promise. Definite article, singular promise. What is the promise? Well, it's the promise made, made to Adam in the garden, Genesis 3:15. That the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. It's the promise that was then expanded and, and given more detail to Abraham in Genesis 12, the covenant promise that God would make of Abraham a great nation and give him a land and make him a blessing to the nations of the world. And the promise made to Adam through Abraham was not for him only or for Israel only, but for all believers. Because Jesus has upheld and fulfilled the promise. We are heirs with Christ. We have received the promise too. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, Paul preached on it two weeks ago. It says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. It's in Christ that we receive this promise. Spiritually dead people that Paul's describing there, spiritually dead people don't deserve any promises. And they certainly don't deserve the great covenant promise promise of God's word and the crazy part is at the same time at the same time that we can rejoice in receiving the promise we can sometimes feel a little smug and arrogant about others receiving the promise as if they are somehow not quite as worthy we can almost resent others who have received this great promise so Saturday at the master's was great it was beautiful, it was fun. The food was delicious, the golf was great. Sunday at the Masters. Uh, we went to church in the morning because there's a PCA church, like a quarter mile of away. You can walk there if, if you go. So we went to church Sunday morning, a little conflicted about that, to be honest. But we went, went to church, got to the golf course around noon, and it was packed. Sunday at the Master's, right? It was packed. And man, my attitude was rotten. I was like, where do these people come from? Don't they know I have this badge? I was here all day yesterday. I was here first. Now there's all these like kids and old people on the ropes I can't even see. I went to the 18th green to watch the climax of the tournament, and I'm 20 or 25 people deep. I can't see the players. I can't see the ball. I certainly can't see the hole. I'm just listening to Try to figure out what happens. Listening to the whispers and then listening to the cheers. But I have no idea. Resentful on day two. Resentful that others would get in my way. And how quickly our hearts turn from the joy of our salvation to the distrusting, stiff-arming sometimes of others who we think, really? They think they belong here? I know what they've done. I know how difficult and prickly their personality is. They live in a totally different part of town, or I just I don't know how to relate to them. We so quickly turn against our own. Now, the promise of the gospel, the promise of the covenant, the promise spread throughout the pages of Scripture is a promise not only to save you, but it's a promise to transform you and to transform me. It's a promise not only to become a part of the kingdom, but in the kingdom to be more and more like the king. And so this morning, if you are struggling with that sense of unworthiness, that somehow you feel like you don't fit in the kingdom or that others within the church have made you feel that way somehow, if you struggle with that sense of unworthiness, the promise of the gospel can help your spirit ascend to its proper place, seated with Christ as an heir of the promise. If this morning you sense the Holy Spirit convicting you of pride, the gospel again, the power of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel, can cause your spirit to descend to its proper place of humility and gratitude for Jesus Christ. Some authors uh, talk about Ephesians as the book of the church, the epistle of the church. It's all about the church. Um, and more than one person has said over the years, cynically, from the outside, has said, God is dead and the church is his tomb. And we look at what Paul says about the church here in Ephesians, this beautiful, incredible vista of how the church has come into be by the will of God true Jesus Christ, and we look at even just one verse like this that that Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the body and partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ, and maybe we can get a little bit cynical. One commentator I read, Eugene Peterson, says, yeah, we should be a little bit cynical. Ephesians is a picture of the church that we never see. It's a picture of the church that we never see. It's what it should be, it's what it will be, But right now, he says, without the clear vision of Ephesians, we're left looking at the church through a cracked windshield, marred by smudges and spattered bugs. And so, my encouragement to us this morning is to know and to believe that through Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit, the church we read about here in verse 6 can be experienced. We can grow into this description, we can grow into it as we look at Jesus Christ and his gospel, and the spirit transform us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be doing your work, that you would speak to our hearts and our minds. Father, where where our own hearts and where the praise of man has brought us high, we pray that your gospel would bring us low again, helping us see our need and rejoicing in the wonder of being accepted in Jesus Christ. Father, where we are struggling, where we are are doubting our salvation, where we feel unworthy, we pray that you would fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and has brought us in and calls us heirs, members of his body, partakers of the promise. Father, raise us up, we pray. And may this church, PCPC, more and more be a reflection of the church called to be in Ephesus. May we do it for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.